Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter. You're on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. We've all heard that Western nations are experiencing declining birth rates, but today's guest says it's happening way faster than we think, with world population on track to peak around the year 2060. That's decades before the well-known UN estimates predict. What does that mean for the American and global economies? And what can we do about it, if anything? My AEI colleague, Jesus Fernandez Villaverde, joins this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, to discuss those questions and more. Jesus is a professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania, where he serves as director of the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets. He's also the John H. Macon Visiting Scholar here at the American Enterprise Institute. Jesus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A lot of our discussion is going to be based on a paper that you co-authored, Demographic Transitions Across Time and Space. When you talk about the demographic transition, you're talking about a shift that countries undergo as they get richer and develop from a high fertility, high mortality kind of demographic to low fertility and low mortality. Is that what you mean by demographic transition? Yes. Why is that something economists study? Two reasons. First, because we believe um, that demographics are intimately linked with uh, economic growth. Go back to the beginning of our science, Robert Malthus, one of the very earliest economists, already brought very coherently uh, about it. And second, because it helped us to think about a long list of policy questions that depend in a crucial way on demographics. So when I think about the future of Medicare, when I think about the future of social security, those depend crucially on demographics. So understanding demographics is key to have good economic policies in the middle. I mean, but so the key findings of that paper have to do with sort of, is it the, the speed and sort of the, uh, the depth of that transition? Like, what are you saying that is different from what people previously believed about the demographic transition? Okay, so you are absolutely right. It's about the speed. Yeah. So if you uh, stop any economist or demographer and you ask them what is happening with fertility, in the planet, they will tell you, well, it's falling. Uh, so that's well known. What we add is a twist. We say it's falling much faster than anyone have realized before. And it's falling at a speed that is going to fundamentally transform many of our societies and the planet as a whole in ways that most policymakers are not really taking into consideration. So it's the speed. Right. It's not that it's falling, it is falling amazingly fast. Okay, so people may have a general, and policymakers mm -hmm. may have a general knowledge, but you're saying is that they're dramatically underestimating how fast that is happening across the world. Exactly. So let me give you a couple of numbers, mm -hmm. which personally I think are mind-blowing. Usually we talk about the replacement rate. So the replacement rate is how many children does a woman need to have on average to keep population constant in the long run? And many listeners may have heard the number 2.1. Yes, 2 so why 2.1? 2 
Well, because um, under natural circumstances, without any type of selective abortion, there are around 105 boys born per 100 girls, and a few of the girls that are born uh, are not going to complete their fertility age. So that's why you need a little bit more than two. Mm -hmm. In fact, 2.1 is a very good number for the United States. It's not a good number for the planet. Why is not a good number for the planet? Well, because of two reasons. Reason one, selective abortions. You go to China, you go to India, and these are huge countries, demographically speaking, there is a lot of selective abortions. So in India or China, you have around 110 kids per 100 girls. Second, because in Africa, another big part of the demographic future of humanity, infant mortality is still sufficiently high that it makes a little bit of a difference. So the planet as a whole, the replacement rate is not 2.1. It's more like 2.2, 2.25. You know, this is kind of hard to know the exact number. Now, I go to the planet and I look at the fertility of the planet as a whole mm -hmm. in 2023. Right. So according to my calculations, it's already 2.2. That means that the planet in 2023, I'm not talking about the United States. Right. I'm not talking about North America. I'm not talking about the advanced economies. I'm talking about the planet. Right is already below replacement rate, which means that the world population will start falling some moment around the late 2050s, maybe to early 2060s. Of course, this depends on how people will react over the next mm -hmm. few decades, how mortality will evolve. But what I want the listeners to understand is for the very first time in the history of humanity, you know, humans have been around for 200,000 years, we are below replacement rate in terms of fertility. That doesn't mean the population's going down now, right? That mm -hmm. means the population will be going down a generation from now. It's so what does that mean what does that mean for sort of the long-term estimate of peak population? The UN we usually hear mm -hmm. about the UN forecast and they the forecasting is about 9 or 10 billion is the yeah. well, but, so you're saying it will not, we will not reach those levels. Exactly. So let me, first of all, let me tell you the uh, United Nations population prospects, so everyone knows where I am. Uh, the most recent version is 2022. They, uh, the United Nations forecast that the peak of humanity will be 2084 mm -hmm. and that it will be around 9.7 billion. Right, okay. My argument is the United Nations is underestimating how fast fertility is falling. So instead of 2084, I'm pushing this to 2060, let's say. Mm -hmm. And instead of 9.7, I will say that we will peak around 9.2, 9.1. Right. And then we are going to start falling. And start declining faster than what the UN thinks. Yes, definitely okay. faster. Right. So let me give you a very simple example. The number of births that actually did happen in China in mm -hmm. 2022 is what the United Nations forecasted were going to happen around 2040. So China is running 18 years ahead of the United Nations mm -hmm. forecast. And you know, China is a big chunk of humanity. For India, they are also th five or six years ahead of the forecast. And if you go country by country, you realize that the United Nations is always behind. If you want, I can tell you why the United Nations is doing this, but basically their model is running hot is forecasting way too many birds for what we are actually seeing. And that's why I'm pushing the United Nations for 2084 to 2060. Um, I mean, that's a, it's a big difference. I mean, you're talking a difference, at least half a billion people, yes. right? That, that's, a, that's, a, yeah. uh, that's a lot. 
tell me about the, the rule of 85. Okay. Because that's very fascinating. It's kind of a back-the-envelope way of looking at how to figure out some of these numbers. Okay. So this is something I came <laughs> when I was trying to explain yeah. this to undergrads, and I figured it out that it's very easy to remember. Right. So take the United States, take Canada, take Japan, the richest, more advanced economies. Mm -hmm. So the life expectancy is around 85 years. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> imagine that you have a society where you have 1,000 people being born every year. Right. Since they are going to be living on average 85 years, in the long run, that's a society that is going to have 85,000 people. So if you want to kind of forecast what the level of population of a society will be, just look at the number of births that you have in any given year, multiply by 85, and that will give you kind of a middle-run assessment. And it's such a simple rule of thumb. Right. So if you want to forecast, you know, China. So China last year had slightly below 10 million births. Mm. 10 million times 85, you know, most of us can do that in our right. head, sure. is 850 million. Well, their population now is 1.4 billion, so <laughs> there you have a 60% reduction. South Korea, they had 240,000 births, I'm quoting from memory, right. you know, a few thousand up or down, multiply by 85, you have a slightly over 20 million. Current population of co South Korea, 51 million. So that's, 20, that's 20 million when? It will be 20 million in 85 more years. Okay, okay. all right. But in some sense, this is a very optimistic scenario because it's assuming that birds are not going to continue falling down, which are probably going to continue falling down because the new cohorts will be smaller, there will be less women having fewer children. So in that sense, the rule of 85, when fertility is going down, mm. kind of gives you an upper bound. Right. Well, it helps to have a lot of people in your country from a geopolitical standpoint. So you're talking about a different world of... Uh, probably a, a much smaller China than mm -hmm. people are expecting, maybe relatively then a, a, a bigger India, and also what does then the United States look like? Mm -hmm. I realize you don't have all these numbers in front of you either. Uh, but I, I remember yeah. many of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so China, yeah, China is looking at a demographic abyss, and unless the Communist Party is able to change that, China is going to be a way less important economy in the middle run. In fact, I'm just uh, finishing a paper with a couple of co-authors where we forecast the economic growth of China and our main uh, statement using demographics mm -hmm. is that the U.S. will grow more than China by the year 2034, yes, because China is going to have such a big falling population. In comparison with India, India has now around 24 million births a year. So I told you China is below 10. India is 25 million. Mm -hmm. So it's two and a half times as many kids per year as, as, as India. Sorry, as China. So in 50 years, the geopolitics of Asia are going to look totally different from what they are now. So a lot of people in Washington is very worried about China. I think that they are right to be worried about China until the year 2030, 2035. After 2035, you know, the future doesn't look very bright for China. Uh, putting aside yeah. things that can change, like immigration, sure. uh, what would be your U.S. population forecast? Well, that, as you say, the absolute key is immigration. Right. But let's suppose that we go, and it's not that I'm advocating that policy, just for a, as a mental experiment, a yeah. thought experiment. Right. Let's suppose that, you know, we have a perfect close to immigration, zero immigration from now on. Mm -hmm. The U.S. right now is 335 million, mm -hmm. so we will probably peak at 340 million and then start falling. Okay. In fact, the U.S. population that has both parents being born in the U.S. is already falling. What might change this forecast, either up, uh, up or down? Um, 
one thing you mentioned in, in another um, piece that you wrote is people's religious affiliation. Yes, that could you know whether it, whether they become more religious, less religious, that seems to have an impact on their fertility rate and birth rates. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> so and that can change. That can change. So, for instance, let me give you a, a very simple example that a lot of people may relate to. Um, when Ireland was partitioned and became, you know, the south, the, the 26 counties in the south of Ireland became the, the the free state of Ireland and the six counties in the north stay as Ulster or Northern Ireland, Protestants were around 65% of the population and Catholics were around 35%. Yeah. That's why they didn't want to join the free state of Ireland. In Northern Ireland, probably Catholics are going to become a majority. Well, because Catholics in Ireland for the last 80 years have a little bit of a higher uh, fertility. Why is this going to become so much more important? Let me give you a very simple example. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to 1950. And let me, in a very crude way, separate families between secular and religious. Okay. So a secular family, let's say, it has uh, 2.5 kids, and a religious family on average has 3 kids. Well, the difference is 0.5. But the base, 2.5, is sufficiently high that it doesn't make much of a difference. Now, fast forward to 2023, the secular family is having one kid. The religious family is having two. So, first of all, the religious families have also reduced their size, but they have reduced their fertility less than secular. And because the secular base now is so small, now we are talking about huge differences. All right. Okay. Now, the question, of course, over there is going to be how much of this religiosity will be transmitted intergenerationally. It's the case that the sons and the daughters of religious families are also going to be religious or not, but let's assume the persistence, there is some persistence. Right. Well, that basically will tell you that in 200 years, the composition of the U.S. population will be extremely different. And in fact, this is not a crazy point. Most historians of what is known as late antiquity. So late antiquity goes from around 300 in the current era to around 700 in the current era, argue that conversions to Christianity stop around the year 370, 380. I'm talking about Western Europe. Basically what happens over the next 300 years is that Christians have a higher fertility than non-Christians. And by the early 700s, there are just not that many non-Christians left in Europe, and Europe has become a totally Christian continent. So these things happen. Small differences in fertility, you run them for 200 right. years, and it has a huge difference. And again, going back to my point, North Ireland. Northern Ireland is a very different place today now than 100 years ago, yes, because Catholics have a fewer, a little bit more kids than, than Protestants. Uh, something else that could change is public policy. In countries which are already experiencing these kind of drops, you see, you know, they're going to, uh, you know, bonuses to get people to have more kids, and there's a variety of sort of subsidies to mm -hmm. encourage. Do, do those policies work? My sort of baseline is that they probably really don't work. Maybe people have kids sooner than they would otherwise. Mm -hmm. but do, do we know of policies that actually have a any kind of significant? change on the number of kids people have, in, in, at least in the rich countries. Yes. So first of all, let me be absolutely uh, open. The jury is still a little bit out mm -hmm. because, as you say, uh, maybe what is happening is that people is just changing the moment where the kids are born. My reading of the evidence mm -hmm. is that you make a little bit of an impact. 
So right now, think about countries like Spain or Italy, or fertility rates are around 1.2, which is absolutely horrible. Right. I mean, it's, it's like half reduction of half of the size of the population in each generation. Aggressive policies like child subsidies, making easier to consile family and work, maternity leaves, etc., can push you back to 1.7, 1.8. So you are never coming back to three, you are right. never coming back to four. The point I have argued uh, to policymakers is if you are in a society where the fertility rate is 1.8, you can handle a gently decreasing population. What you don't want to be is in front of a demographic abyss. So policies, in my reading of the evidence, help you to go from disaster into gentle decline. And I think the evidence supports that that can be achieved. What do we know about societies that undergo a demographic decline? Because it's, it's, uh, I imagine the past when that's happened, it's been because of war mm -hmm. and disease, not because choices people make, you know, voluntarily, right? Mm -hmm. It's been, there's been some sort of shock. So can we, so we, do we really have a good feel for what that looks like when a country undergoes demographic decline, not because of disaster, but because of just the choices people make, whether because of religious mm -hmm. reasons or what have you, or the cost of childcare or whatever? <laughs> so we don't, we have never been there. Uh, I, 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 I have written a piece with uh, what I think are educated conjectures. What type of educated conjectures I have? Well, first of all, um, it's going to be a society that is way less dynamic. Um, I'm a little bit older than I used to be, and I already realized that for me to adopt new technologies now is much harder than when I was 10 years younger. As the average person in society becomes older and older, you are just going to have societies that adopt fewer newer technologies, you have fewer uh, new entrepreneurs, etc. So, for instance, there has been a lot of discussion that in the U.S. there are now way less new businesses than 10, 15, 20 years ago. And there is a great economist at the University of California at LA, Uwe Hoppenheim, who has, I think, very convincingly demonstrated that this is completely driven by the fact that we have less 25 years old. So right. most new firms are created by people in their 20s, late 20s, we have now fewer people in their late 20s. And what he actually shows is that the percentage of people in the late 20s that create firms is the same that before. Right. It's just there are less of them. So you are going to have fewer uh, new firms. We are going to be also societies that, you know, somehow lose a little bit of the sense of the future because everyone tends to be very old. And then the third point that I conjecture is that, <clears throat> and this is something that we really, really want to keep in mind, mm -hmm. the drops in population are not going to be uniform across the space. What I mean by that is, let's suppose that, as I was mentioning before, things continue in the way they continue now in South Korea for another 50 years. So South Korea is going to lose 30 million people. Those people are not going to disappear from Seoul, from the capital. They are going to disappear from rural areas. Right. And then what do we do with those rural areas? There is going to be a moment, and you already see that even in the U.S., but in a lot of places in Western Europe. Population in a county starts to fall down, fall down, fall down. And you know what the real problem is? One day they close the supermarket. Right. And it's not because the supermarket owner is evil. It's just because to run a supermarket, you need enough people. Right. 
and suddenly there is not enough people in the county to have a large supermarket. And once you don't have a large supermarket in the county, life becomes very hard because the only thing you have is a convenience store. Right. So people move out. So even people who want to live in a small rural counties move out of the rural county because there are no services in the rural county anymore. I think about, you know, who is going to keep the universities in a small rural areas open? There's just not going to be any enough people to go to these colleges. Right. And how do you go to your community and tell them that you are closing the local campus of your big state university? Just because there are not enough kids. At least a few of the listeners are already thinking of the film Children of Men. Are you familiar with it? I actually am not. <laughs> no. The premise is that for some reason, uh, 18 years ago, 18 years yeah. previous, uh, women over the course of like a year just stopped having okay. kids. That, and the movie begins where the youngest person alive yes. ends up being murdered. Okay. He's an 18-year-old. Okay. And so it's a world where nobody's having kids. And... Society's beginning to fall, you know, mm -hmm. fall apart. They can, you know, it's like people have nothing to live for. Uh, they're they're already, you know, trying to gather up great works of art and kind of preserve them. They don't know for who, and it just it just seems like a society that's winding down. Yes. Let me. Well, let, let's uh, uh, get back. Um, mortality could change, of course. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, we yeah, CRISPR, all kinds of genetic editing. I mean that. That could that I mean you can't really predict where technology will go, but that is something that could potentially change, or even I don't know uh, okay. artificial wombs. Maybe that will change people's choices as well. Oh no, like fa fa fair enough. Let, let me let me just tackle the the issue of mortality. So remember the rule of eighty five. Yes. So well, you can change it to ninety to ninety five, uh, one hundred. Right. You know, one hundred right. will be the nicer because you just put two zeros. Well, let me go back to China. Uh, I told you. 10 million births a year, now apply a rule of 100, that will be 1 billion. So they are still losing 400 right. million. So, And do we really think that increases in medical technology can push mortality much later than 100? I'm not an expert, but from what I talk with people who are a little bit more knowledgeable than I am, they tend to be a skeptic. In fact, uh, I have been talking with, with economists who have been looking at mortality and the changes in mortality in the U.S. and other advanced economies. Most of what modern medicine do for you is increasing the quality of life over the last years. Right. So it used to be the case that you will see someone in his 70s and he will be old and you know in a very bad shape. Right. Now you are in a pretty good shape until three days before you die. Right, right. Okay? So I think that a lot of what medicine is going to do is not increase our life expectancy that much. It's, um, it's just about making our quality of life uh, better. As a piece of a personal anecdote, if I may. Sure. <coughs> I, both my wife and I are economists, which means that we have long sessions at home discussing investment portfolios and retirement accounts, you know, and we include equations. And, you know, I know that most of you probably don't, don't have discussions with whiteboards at uh -huh. home and, and covariances of investment. But uh, the age that I use for my own forecast of my own uh, life is 90. So I don't use more than 90. So at a personal level, I don't forecast myself living on expectation over 90 years old. One, one solution that's not a technological uh, solution is immigration. Um, but I would think there's a limit to how many, even the most pro-immigration country, how many immigrants. Yes. It seems like it's not really a plausible policy for most countries, maybe for the United States more than others, but even there that there's 
there's limits. Yes, of course. So, well, first of all, every time I talk about immigration, I remind people I'm an immigrant myself, as you can probably tell from my funny accent. So it's not that I'm against immigrants. Uh, What I try to point out in something that I write is, look, I was mentioning that South Korea is about to lose 60% of their population. Well, Mm. that will mean that 60, if you want to keep population constant, you will need that 60% of people living in South Korea are not of Korean heritage. Have we ever seen societies that undertake such a deep demographic change in a couple of generations can a political system digest that change? I'm I'm quite skeptical. One thing is to bring, I don't know, 10% of your population, 20% of immigrants. A very different thing is to have 60%. Second point, I mentioned before that the planet as a whole is going to start losing people. And as far as we know, the net, the net immigration to the right. planet is still zero. Right. Okay, maybe it's like in men in black, there are some people coming from outside. But if, let's say, the U.S. in 2040 is still bringing immigrants from some developing economies, it means that the demographic problem of these developing economies is going to become even more serious. So let me give you a concrete example. If I were the Minister of Finance of Brazil, Mm -hmm. I will not be able to sleep at night. Brazil will probably start losing population around 2030, 2032, if not earlier. Who is going to migrate to Brazil? Brazil is still losing population. The best and the brightest of Brazilians move to the US or to Europe. You go to any good US university, there's a lot of top Brazilian students and, and researchers. People, Brazil starts losing population, which immigrants do you bring? Who, who is going to move to Brazil? Right. Okay. Another country that, believe it or not, will probably start losing population maybe in another 20, 25 years are all Central American republics. So who is going to migrate to Guatemala? So what do you do then? More and again, more likely there, that uh, that even more so people who have yes. a lot of who have possibilities who could yeah. get a job in an advanced economy. They will, will move over exactly. Leave. So you are going to really, really be in a very tight spot. And that's you know the immigration to me sounds really like I'm a U.S. person or I'm a German person. I'm thinking about this from a European or a North American perspective. Right. I, I want the listeners to understand this is for the planet as a whole. Right. And. By the year 2055, every immigrant I'm gaining is someone else that is losing an immigrant. But if you are a country with yes. a, who, who is able, has a yeah. history yes. of accepting immigrants, mm-hmm. it sounds like on a comparative level that that is really to your advantage. And if you think not only the size of your country, but the, yes. the quality of your workforce is important, that that, to me, you're making a case that this would be a big plus for the United States overall from a geopolitical, geoeconomic position. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Sure, sure, sure. So that's, that's you know, coming back to our discussion about China versus the U.S., yeah. uh, I think the, the, the U.S. is still going to attract immigrants. You know, how many immigrants we want to attract? And I say what we now because I'm naturalized, so I can right. say we. Um, how many immigrants we want to attract is a discussion we can have. But let's suppose that immigration stays at that historical level, an historical average. So the U.S. is not going to be in a very tight spot, demographically speaking, in 2040. China is going to be on a very tight spot. And that's going to really be a game changer, which goes back to my point before about why I'm not worried about China taking over the world in the year 2050. 
as I was mentioning in a previous answer, if somehow we avoid a conflict with China by the year 2030, mm-hmm. in some sense, the war is war. It's won. Right. It's just an issue of waiting 10 years handling this situation because then China will really, really need to do something serious with their economy and their political system. Now, something that can happen is that China you know, starts forcing people to have a lot of kids. What I will remember, listeners, is some very basic facts of nature. So even if the Chinese government starts forcing everyone to have kids, it will take nine months and one night, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then once the kid is born, it takes what, 22, 23 years before this person completes college. And if we want these people to be top researchers, etc., they need to go to graduate school. It's 20 years. So think about it in this way. If we are thinking about the top researchers among the cohort that is being born today in 2023, these people are not going to be researchers until 2051. Demographics has this enormous momentum right. that things that we decide today do not really show up until 30 years later. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I think that a lot of the demographic policies are not in a lot of economies are not very good because most politicians do not think 30 that's a years ahead. That's very long time yes. scale. Jesus, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me here.